0: All right, why don't we stand and read together Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For he saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, or Judah, I should say, um, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him." After hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star which they had went um the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child of Mary his mother, And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for egypt he remained there until the death of herod and this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the lord through the prophet out of egypt i called my son then when herod saw that he had been tricked by the magi he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the magi then what had been spoken through the Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to begin by asking all of you a couple of questions. And I encourage the kids, especially, to participate. Um, Out of curiosity, what do you look forward to most about Christmas? What are your favorite parts? Anyone? Darcy. Giving? Okay. Giving more. Giving more. Okay. Amelia. Good food. Good food. Good. Visiting with people. Visiting with people. So fellowship, Yeah celebration. Oh, I see one in the very far back. Is that Elijah or Sam? Sam? Family. And we'll go with one more. Is that Jacob? Okay. Jesus' birthday. birthday. You're a well-trained pastor's kid. (laughs) Thank you for redeeming me there. (laughs) Okay, here's another question for you. What are your favorite parts of the Christmas story that are found in the Bible? So as we read, you know, from the beginning, from uh, all the things you know about the, from Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and 2, which is where the Christmas story is born, what are your most memorable parts that are found within the Christmas story? What's, what parts stand out to you that bring you joy and are sort of your favorite things? Okay, when God provided the manger and the stable for, for Mary and Joseph to be sort of sheltered and where Jesus could be born. Perfect. Shepherds in the field. In the field. Yeah, the, the angelic uh, visit. Yeah. Anyone else? Abby. Mary's willingness. Mary's willingness. Okay. Totally. What a crazy uh, potential social stigma to carry in a culture like that. Yeah. One more. No pressure. God's protection. Perfect. Okay. Excellent. For me, something I discovered recently that should have stood out to me actually occurred during my studies in the summer. And I was just reading Matthew for, for just for pure pleasure. And I didn't realize how many times God used dreams and visions to communicate the truths and events surrounding Christ's birth. A repetitive theme is he gave a dream, he gave a dream, he gave a vision, and the, so for example, he gave Zechariah uh, a, a dream um, that John the Baptist was to be born, despite the fact that they were barren. Of course, the story of Mary, that she, a, a dream was given to her that she was going to, or a vision was given to her that she was going to carry a baby, despite being a virgin, and so on. The Magi, for example, not to return to Herod. So it's a pretty cool theme throughout. But significant for this morning, isn't it interesting that none of you told this story or mentioned Herod's mass genocide of baby boys? None of you mentioned that, in an attempt to kill Jesus. Now I understand totally why, because it's the same reason it didn't make my list either. The other events fill you with hope, fill you with joy, fill you with faith and wonder at the birth of Christ. The story of Herod makes you sick to your stomach and filled with anger and even sadness. And yet Matthew includes this in the telling of the Christmas story. And one pastor I listened to from, uh, from Scotland, he actually said with a nice thick Glaswegian accent, did Matthew spoil our Christmas? By including this story, does Matthew spoil our Christmas? Well, the question for us this morning is outside of being historical truth, what are we to learn from this? Well, before we come to that, I want to give you a quick summary of the entire chapter that we read so that we're familiar with the sequence of events. So, when Matthew begins in chapter 2 and verse 1, the story starts innocent enough. It's on a hopeful and joyous note. In in verse 1, Matthew, or sorry, Magi from the East, most likely Babylon, arrive in Jerusalem after a long journey. Uh, upon their arrival, they make it clear to those as to why they have shown up, why they're in Jerusalem. They have come to find the King of the Jews, who we know now to be Jesus, and they've come to worship Him. Now being Jewish, one would think that that announcement, that the Messiah would be there, as Israel's deliverer, would have brought great joy to the capital city and led to excitement and celebration in the streets. But Matthew tells us something else happens. And in verse 3, he says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. So Herod was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. This word, troubled, means to be greatly agitated, to be terrified, even. So again, long from being a joyous celebration, it's agitating to the city of Jerusalem and the leaders, and they're terrified of King Jesus showing up. So feeling threatened by the arrival of Christ, Herod, in his paranoia, comes up with a plan to eliminate him. In verse 4, he gathers all the religious leaders together the chief priests and the scribes, to find out where in the Old Testament prophecies the Messiah was to be born. The religious leaders bring him to Micah 5, verse 2. And Matthew records in verse 6, the answer was, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah. So the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah the prophet. So Herod now knows the vicinity of Jesus' whereabouts. And so on in verse 7, he calls for the Magi to, quote, determine the exact time the star appeared in order to figure out basically how old Jesus was at the time. So Herod then tries to deceive the Magi into giving up Jesus' exact location, but in a sovereign act of God, Jesus' life is protected through the warning in a dream. Herod finds out he's been deceived, and Matthew records this in verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. It's a brutal story surrounding the events of Christ's birth. So what are we to learn from this? I believe the overarching lesson is is actually uh, an incredibly important one, and this sort of is the theme through chapter 2. In this, we see the depth of God's love for us. In this, we're going to see the depth of God's love for us. How, you might ask. (laughs) This is apparent when you see the stark reality of the world into which Christ came, the stark reality the, of the world in which to God was sent His Son. See when God sent His Son into the world, He was not sent into a world resembling the Garden of Eden, it wasn't a world free from evil, it wasn't a world that was sinless, it wasn't a world free from suffering or pain. He was sent into Herod's world, a world in which an arrogant politician would misuse his God-given authority to commit acts of atrocity. A world in which inhumane government policies were put into place to dominate its citizens. A world in which the extermination of countless number of innocent children's lives could be taken without conscience. A world in which the kingship of Jesus was ignored and feared. A world Of weeping and mourning. And yet, this was the world that Jesus Christ was sent into. This fragile and vulnerable little baby boy, not sheltered from the evils of the world, but thrust into the center of it and to experience himself the horrors of it. have to do is go through the gospel messages and see Jesus' ministry to know that he was not sheltered from the horrors of people like Herod's world he entered into the suffering that we experience and that we have faced and as Matthew tells the story we can see that nothing has changed Herod's world is our world Herod's world is our world And Matthew is saying to us, just look around you, Genesis House. Read the paper. Look at your favorite social media posts on the news and see that nothing is new under the sun as King Solomon once said in Ecclesiastes. Yes, it can be a time of joy. It can be a time of joy as even seen in verse 10. Because when the Magi showed up, they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But it's also a world full of cruelty, oppression, and darkness. And yet Christ came into this world. Now, the depth of his love is even seen further in that he had the right to judge a world like this immediately upon his arrival. He could have judged the world like this, but he didn't. He came initially not to judge, but to save us as a demonstration of his love. Save us from the atrocities of this world. And so, John 3.16 takes a new meaning, or a furthered meaning at Christmas time, especially in light of Herod's world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, here's the key. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So again, the Lord had every right to come as judge, but in his first coming, he came to offer forgiveness, restore and bring healing to pain and suffering, all from the things that we've done uh, to him and breaking his law. He came because of our sins and not his own. He even came to offer forgiveness to people such as Herod. He came to forgive men like Herod. That's the extent of the Lord's love. This truly is, even in the midst of atrocity, good news. So that's the main thrust, I think, of what Matthew is saying to us through here, that we can learn from him. But I suggest there's another lesson that emerges, and it comes from the last half of the, uh, or the last portion of the, the reading this morning. And what we also learn from here is that Jesus is the Christ, not only for times of joy, but times of mourning and sorrow. Jesus is the Christ, not only for times of joy, but for times of mourning and sorrow. Again, when we come through verses 16 through 18, we see this time of sorrow in the land of Israel, or in Judah specifically. And apparently, according to extra-biblical resources, uh, Herod... um, was known for this type of atrocity, and this is already part of his character. He was known as this kind of man that he could just commit genocide at a whim. Apparently he put three out of his sons, three out of his five sons to death because he believed they were plotting against him. He put his wife to death because he suspected her, didn't know for sure, but suspected her of adultery. He rounded up 425 prominent leaders in Israel at one time to put them in prison. And he told his sister, at the time when he was to die, to put the 425 men to death, so that at least there would be some type of mourning in Israel at his passing. That's how much he knew he was hated. So when recounting the actions of Herod's genocide, He quotes from Jeremiah. He says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So, in order to see how Matthew ties Herod's genocide to the uh, prophet Jeremiah, we have to go back into the Jeremiah prophecy and look at what was going on in Israel's history. So, let's begin with who is Rachel who was Rachel, who was weeping for her children. Rachel was the wife of Jacob. Jacob and Rachel had two sons. One was named Joseph, and one was named Benjamin. Now Benjamin is the way we pronounce his name, but in Hebrew, his name was Benoni. Hebrew, Benoni is Benjamin in our our context. The word for Benoni, his name meant sorrow. Now she named him that, sorrow because while she was giving birth, she knew that she was dying, and she knew that in her labor, she was going to lose her life, and so she named the son, Benoni, after the fact that she was going to die. So Rachel is known as the mother of sorrow and is associated with weeping. Ramah is a place five miles north of Jerusalem. And it's extremely important in Judah's history. Ramah was a location where after the Babylonians captured Jerusalem and killed many Jews, they gathered all the remaining survivors before marching them off to Babylon in captivity. So this is a great tragedy in Judah's history, because this, is, when they were gathered at Ramah, they had experienced the loss of Jerusalem. And the temple and so on, they'd experienced a lot of death, a tremendous amount of death, and a great sadness because their remainders, remainder people were taken as slaves into captivity and they had to leave the Holy Land. So Rachel's known as the mother of sorrow, associated with weeping, and Rama's the a place where death was experienced, and a time of great sadness in the land of Judah. So Matthew quotes this prophecy as a type. Here are the Jews, once again weeping, and this time, yet again, yet over another tragedy of epic proportions. Now, I don't know about you, but how do you ever overcome something like that? From a human point of view, you you can't. I don't think you ever can overcome something like that. But here is where being a follower of Christ makes all the difference. Because there's hope found in Him. Knowing what He has in store for those who love Him. And for those who have hope in Christ, death does not mean the end. Knowing Jesus it's really just the beginning. And it also brings us hope, knowing that Christ Himself entered into a world like this and suffered the same things that these people suffered. Mary, his own uh, own mother, had to suffer the loss of her own son. Jesus was slandered, life-threatened, tempted, all like we are in his commitment to his kingdom work. And so for the believer, there's hope in Christ. He's not only the Christ for times of joy, but times of sorrow and mourning. And I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 and 55. He says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory equals hope. There's hope in the Lord. What's interesting though, just for fun, I know this is not Matthew's intent, by using, uh, for for, for what I want to say to you now, but when you look at Jeremiah 31, which is where he quotes this from, he stops here intentionally, because he's relating these verses in Jeremiah to the the genocide of of, of Herod. But when you go into Jeremiah 31, it's really key and fun to look at what comes next. So in Jeremiah 31, he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because she was no more. Again, speaking of the tragedy of Rachel, and speaking of the tragedy of what's going to happen for Babylonian captivity, but look at the next verse in Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping, and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. And then in verse 33, he says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. You know why this is so incredible? After he talks about the Babylonian captivity, the very next verse, he says, but there's hope. So I've had to judge you for sin, but there is still hope for you. That's an amazing thing. I will be their God, and they'll be my people. And in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews takes these exact verses from 33 and 34 of Jeremiah and talks about how Christ fulfilled this. So this was not just true for Israel as a nation. This is true for all believers for all time. Look at this in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, or 8 and 10. You can read these later on yourself. But in Hebrews 8 and 10, he speaks about Christ, the high priest of a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter uh, 10 16, he talks about Christ's sacrifice once for all for sin. So he speaks about Jesus being the new covenant, so no more need for Animals and bulls, because Jesus fulfilled it all. And Christ sacrificed once for all for sin. And that's all in he quotes in Hebrews 8 and 10, in Hebrews 10 and 16, Jeremiah 33 and 34. Verse thirty three and 34. I will make with my people a new covenant and write my law in their minds and on their hearts. So not just a promise for, for Babylon, or sorry, for Israel, a promise for us today. So I don't know what you're going through at this time during the Christmas season. Some of you, this might be an incredible time of joy. And celebrate that. But some of you at Christmas might be finding yourselves in a hard time. This might be a time of pain. It might be a time of loss. It might be a time of suffering for you. But Jesus Christ is not only the Christ for times of <coughs> joy but for mourning and sorrow, and take comfort that there's hope in him.
1: I'm gonna end with a true story
0: of a woman named Caroline Cox, who was a baroness in Great Britain, and uh, her story summarizes everything Matthew's telling us this morning. Caroline uh, was born in Great Britain in 1937, and is currently still alive at age 85. She's an absolutely incredible lady, Uh, she has a remarkable resume behind her name, she has more titles and honor than you can sort of shake a stick at. She's the founder of many organizations and the receiver of different rewards, but she's the founder of one particular organization called HART, and it stands for Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, HART. And she seeks in this organization to be the voice of the voiceless, advocating for neglected victims of genocides, wars, and religious and ethnic cleansing. Basically her organization is there to, to come in after Herod's situation. She comes in after Herod, does what he does. Most notably though, she's a follower of Jesus Christ, and she loves the Lord. Now, one of the places that she has frequented many times over the last number of years is Sudan. According to the resources I've studied, she's been to Sudan 50 times. 50 times. And those of you who know anything about Sudan, they're known for their ethnic cleansing and their human genocides. They kill each other. So at 78, about seven years ago, she was interviewed about her experiences in Sudan. And so she was asked this question, what was your best moments in all of your trips there? And what was your worst moment in all of your trips to there? And so Caroline said this, the worst moment of my life visiting Sudan was when I entered a little village after the Sudanese government, who were Islamic, uh, came in and they burned down all of the huts, the women were raped, and the stench of death was overwhelming. More than a hundred corpses were made up of men, women, and children laying on the ground where they had been slaughtered. Others who had survived had been marched off into captivity as slaves. She says, the worst part for these people was not just bearing that, but the mental distress knowing that the militia could return anytime and take the rest of them. Imagine the anxiety that would cause, those of you especially with kids. The reporter then said, well, what was your best moment? And Caroline said, the best moment came right after the worst, when the militia left and the survivors then had to deal with the aftermath. The few women who were still around and still alive were pulling themselves together, and their first instinctive act, with the stench of death and the corpses laying around, was to make small wooden crosses out of sticks lying on the ground, and they pushed them into the dirt of the earth. The interviewer then asked Caroline, what were they doing? Were they making memorials dedicated to those who were just lost? Caroline said, no, not at all. The crudely made crosses were not grave markers, but symbols of acts of faith. You see, she said, As followers of Jesus Christ, they served a God who they believed knew pain as they knew pain. And aware that the world would neither know or care about their plight, they still staked their lives on the conviction that there was one who knew and who cared, and that they were not alone. Incredible message. Incredible story. But this is Matthew's message to us. The God who loves us enough to give His only Son into a world like Herod's. Into a world like the Sudanese. Like a world into ours. And we stake our lives in the conviction that there is one who cares and knows us and loves us. And there's hope knowing that He is here for us no matter what our circumstances are. Amen. The lessons are whatever, just pretty simple. These two here. Through Matthew's message, we see the depth of God's love for us when we look at the world in which the Christ was sent. And Jesus is not only here for our times of joy, but for times of mourning and sorrow.